is VOA News via remote. I'm Tommy McNeil. The U.S. Secretaries of State and Defense met Sunday night with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky in the highest level visit to the country's capital by an American delegation since the start of Russia's invasion. The meeting with U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken and U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin, which was confirmed by a senior Ukrainian official, came as Ukraine pressed the West for more powerful weapons against Russia's campaign in the Donbass region of eastern Ukraine, where Moscow's forces sought to dislodge the last Ukrainian troops in the battered port of Mariupol. Before the session with Blinken and Austin, Zelensky said he was looking for the Americans to produce results both in arms and security guarantees. The Russian military says it has struck a Ukrainian explosives factory, several artillery depots, and hundreds of other targets. The Russian Defense Ministry spokesman uh, said Sunday that the Russian military used precision-guided missiles to destroy a factory making powder and explosives uh, in the uh, one region in central Ukraine. He said that Russian forces also struck several depots with artillery munitions and rockets in uh, several regions. He also added that the Russian military hit 423 Ukrainian targets overnight. That includes fortified positions and troops concentrations, while Russian warplanes destroyed 26 Ukrainian military targets. A Nigerian oil official says as many as 100 people may have died in an explosion in an illegal oil refinery in southeastern Nigeria. Two people suspected of involvement in the blast at the illegally run facility were being sought by police. Uh, the uh, uh, state commissioner for petroleum resources gave the death toll and said many victims died of severe burns. This is VOA News. French President Emmanuel Macron has comfortably won re-election to a second term. His victory Sunday triggered waves of relief among allies that France won't abruptly shift course in the midst of a war in Ukraine from European and NATO efforts to punish and contain Russia. Macron's far-right rival, Marine Le Pen, has conceded defeat, but she raised her game in the runoff with her best ever showing. The French presidential race has been overshadowed by the war in Ukraine and a surge in French support for extremist ideas. Macron is the first French leader in 20 years to win re-election. Macron still faces a battle to keep his parliamentary majority in France's legislative election in June. A Trump-era policy that forces asylum seekers to wait in Mexico for hearings in U.S. immigration court will be argued Tuesday before the U.S. Supreme Court. We get details from VOA's Marissa Melton. President Joe Biden halted the remain in Mexico policy on his first day in office. A judge forced him to reinstate it in December, but barely 3,000 migrants were enrolled by the end of March making little impact during a period when authorities stopped migrants about 700,000 times at the border. Criticisms of the policy are the same under Biden as they were under President Donald Trump. Migrants are terrified in dangerous Mexico border cities, and it's difficult to find lawyers from Mexico. Marissa Melton, VOA News. In El Salvador, the president, Nayib Bukele, asked the Congress Sunday to extend an anti-gang emergency decree for another 30 days. He's used the emergency powers to round up about 16,000 suspected gang members following a spate of murders in March. 
Rights groups have criticized the measure, saying arrests are often arbitrary based on a person's appearance or where they live. The original 30-day state of emergency approved in late March restricts the rights to gather, to be informed of rights, and have access to a lawyer. It extends to 15 days, a time that someone could be held without charges. It came after a spate of killings in late March when gangs were blamed for 62 killings in one single weekend. The level of violence in the country of 6.5 million has not seen in years. Bekele has uh, established a raft of other measures. Recapping our top story, the U.S. Secretaries of State and Defense met Sunday night with the Ukraine President Volodymyr Zelensky in the higher level a visit to the country's capital. Via remote, I'm Tommy McNeil, VOA News. Today is Monday, April 25th, and this is VOA's International Edition. I am Chinedofo in Washington. Coming up in the next half hour, French President Emmanuel Macron wins a second term in office and defeats far-right rival Marine Le Pen. There's huge relief, but also there's concern. large number of people voted for a far-right populist candidate in the center of Europe. U.S. officials vow to help Ukraine defend itself as Russian forces continue to pound cities in the east. And I am grateful to all our partners who finally heard us, who are providing us with exactly what we asked for, because we know for sure that with these weapons, we will be able to save the lives of thousands of people. And militants in Mali kill Sikh soldiers following an attack at an army base. We'll have these stories and more next on International Edition. Stay tuned. French President Emmanuel Macron has won a second term in office, defeating far-right rival Marine Le Pen. Macron becomes the first French leader in 20 years to win a second term. Several European leaders and politicians have swiftly congratulated Macron. Many in Europe had worried a Le Pen victory would undermine European unity and its post-war order amid Russia's invasion of Ukraine. For more, I spoke with reporter Catherine Field. There is a collective side of Europe, and within half an hour of the result projections coming in, we saw the head of the European Commission, we saw the German Chancellor, we saw the Italian Prime Minister congratulating Emmanuel Macron for making it past the 50% mark, because there really was a concern that with so many other populist governments around that perhaps it wouldn't really go the way that they hoped. So yes, there's huge relief, but also there's concern that even though Emmanuel Macron has managed to get 58, 59% of the vote, that still leaves a large number of people who voted for a far-right populist candidate in the centre of Europe. And that is really what he talked about when he made a speech at the Eiffel Tower. He said he knows a lot of people voted for him because he wasn't Marine Le Pen, because they didn't want a Marine Le Pen president. And he said that some ways people will say that he was president by default, but he said he now hoped that he would be president of all French people. What has been the reaction of the French citizens and French public? 
there is relief. But the real issues that people voted on in these elections were home issues. They were the issues of spending power, rising prices, food prices are going up, fuel prices, petrol prices are all going up. And that's what's really worrying them is that, yes, okay, there is going to be Emmanuel Macron, a president who they know, he's been in power already for five years. But these new challenges that they have, France hasn't seen these for generations. When you see war in Europe, you see uncertainty within the European Union. These are all new challenges that this French president is going to have to deal with in a way that he hasn't really been tested before. And when he made his speech, he was very somber, he wasn't gloating, and you got the feeling as he was talking that he now realises that the next five years are going to be immensely difficult. There are huge expectations for President Emmanuel Macron, especially on the African continent. Do you see any change? What are the hopes and expectations of Africans now that he has won a second term? expect more of the same. What we've seen with Emmanuel Macron in the past is showing a new side of France, trying to turn the page on the Franco-African policies that his predecessors had. And he's been talking a lot about Africa being the master of its own destiny. So I think we're going to see that. One of the things we've seen in the last couple of weeks has been his focus on food shortages in Africa. And he's been not just talking to some of his closer allies in Africa, particularly the Senegal's leader, about food prices. But we've also seen him bringing it up at the EU by saying, look, the crisis in Ukraine isn't just causing food shortages and food price rises in Europe. It's also causing severe economic problems for people in Africa. We've seen him bringing that up on the European stage. So I think you're going to see more of that. Certainly he's going to be concerned about what he's been seeing in Mali. The problem there hasn't gone away, and he's going to have to really think again as to how he deals with the ongoing problems, particularly in the Sahel. That's reporter Catherine Field speaking with me from Paris. U.S. officials have vowed to help Ukraine defend itself as Russian forces continue to pound cities in the east, including Donbass. This, as Russia's deputy military commander, said Moscow's goal is to control Donbass and southern Ukraine, which would give Russian access to the separatist Moldovan enclave of Transnistria and block Kiev's access to the Black Sea. VOA senior diplomatic correspondent Cindy Sain reports. As Russia's assault on Ukraine continues in the city of Kharkiv, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken welcomed Ukraine Prime Minister Denis Shimal to the State Department Friday. Blinken again expressed confidence that Ukraine will prevail in the war. I think um, this is the first visit since the Russian aggression by a senior uh, official of the Ukrainian government. Further evidence that a independent sovereign Ukraine is going to be around a lot longer than Vladimir Putin. Both Prime Minister Shimhal and Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky thanked the U.S. and other Western partners for finally providing the weapons Ukraine needs to fight back against Russia's offensive in Donbas and southern Ukraine. And I am grateful to all our partners who finally heard us, who are providing us with exactly what we asked for, because we know for sure that with these weapons, we will be able to save the lives of thousands of people. 
At the Pentagon, Press Secretary John Kirby was asked whether Ukraine's forces, now that they're getting heavy weapons, would be able to beat back the invading Russians. I think that's a question that only the Ukrainian armed forces can answer, not the United States military. What I can tell you is that we, in keeping and with another 30-plus nations, are doing everything we can to give them the tools that they need to defend themselves and to push the Russians out. Some observers say the U.S. assessment of Ukraine's ability to win has shifted over the past couple of weeks. Historian Ann Applebaum spoke to VOA via Skype. That until the last week or so, I think Americans still weren't wholly convinced that Ukraine could win. And there was some doubt about whether, you know, these heavy weapons were necessary and so on. As I said, it feels to me like there's been a shift in the last week. Um, and the decisions to give much more serious weapons have now been made. Ahead of Orthodox Easter this Sunday, European Council President Charles Michel said he strongly appealed to Russian President Vladimir Putin during a phone call Friday to allow humanitarian access to the besieged city of Maripol, where civilians remain trapped. Cindy Sane, VOA News. UN High Commissioner for Human Rights Michel Bakelek says there is growing evidence of war crimes in Ukraine with the majority of violations attributable to Russian forces. Lisa Schlein reports for VOA from Geneva. The UN Human Rights Monitoring Mission in Ukraine has been gathering and documenting evidence of hundreds of alleged unlawful killings of civilians in Bucha and in towns in the regions of Kiev, Chernihiv, Kharkiv and Sumy. All of those places were under the control of Russian armed forces in late February and early March. UN Rights Chief Michel Bachelet says Russian armed forces have indiscriminately shelled and bombed populated areas. Her spokeswoman, Ravina Shandasani, says they have killed civilians and wrecked hospitals, schools and other civilian infrastructure, actions that may amount to war crimes. She says the monitoring mission has verified more than 5,260 civilian casualties, including 2,345 killed and 2,919 injured. Shandasani says more than 92% of the casualties have been recorded in government-controlled territory and the rest in Russian-controlled regions of Donetsk and Luhansk in eastern Ukraine. We know that the actual numbers are going to be much higher as the horrors inflicted in these areas of intense fighting, such as Mariupol, come to light. The scale of summary executions of civilians in areas previously occupied by Russian forces are also emerging. The preservation of evidence and the decent treatment of mortal remains must be ensured, as well as the psychological and other relief for victims and their relatives. Shandasani says the willful killing of protected people, including summary executions, are gross violations of international human rights law and serious violations of international humanitarian law and amount to war crimes. The monitoring mission also has documented what appears to be the use of cluster munitions by Ukrainian armed forces in the east of the country. Those weapons indiscriminately kill and maim civilians and are banned under international law. Shandasani says the High Commissioner is calling for this senseless war to stop. 
Since the fighting shows no sign of abating, she says the High Commissioner is appealing to the parties to respect international humanitarian and human rights laws. This means distinguishing between civilian and military objects. It means not targeting or deliberately killing civilians. It means not committing sexual violence. People, including prisoners of war, must not be tortured. Civilians, prisoners, and others of the combat must be treated humanely. High Commissioner Butchlet is calling on the parties to the conflict to investigate all breaches of international humanitarian law and to prosecute and hold perpetrators of crimes accountable. This in line with their obligations under what are defined as the rules of war. Lisa Schlein for VOA News, Geneva. U.S. officials say they are deeply concerned with the ongoing violence in Jerusalem. However, with deadlocks in both the Israeli and Palestinian governments, and the heightened worldwide focus on the war in Ukraine, there may not be much the Biden administration can do to restart a Middle East peace process. White House Bureau Chief Patsy Widaskuwara has this report. Violence has spread throughout the week, wounding hundreds of Palestinians and several Israeli police as Muslims mark the holy month of Ramadan. Supporters of the militant Hamas group marched through Gaza, raising fears of further escalation. The Biden administration is urging both sides to lower tensions, White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki told VOA. We continue to call on all sides to exercise restraints, avoid provocative actions and rhetoric, and preserve the historic status quo of the Haram al-Sharif Temple Mount. Earlier this week, Israelis responded to Palestinian militants' rocket attacks with airstrikes, the biggest escalation since an 11-day war between Israel and Hamas last May. The Biden administration has held ongoing talks with Middle East partners and is still considering a White House meeting between senior Israeli and Palestinian officials as conditions permit, a National Security Council spokesperson told VOA. However, with the heightened focus on the war in Ukraine and other priorities, including pandemic recovery, it's unlikely the Biden administration will push for a restart of peace negotiations at this time, said Brian Katulis, senior fellow at the Middle East Institute via Skype. Given that there's a split between Fatah and Hamas, the Palestinian factions, uh, given the Israeli government in a fragile political situation, they want to just be able to uh, lay out some markers and achieve things that are practical rather than overpromise and pretend like there's some sort of grand new sort of era of peace uh, in the Middle East. That's a shift from the Trump administration, which pushed the Abraham Accords. Normalization agreements between Israel and several of its Arab neighbors they said would lead to Middle East peace, despite leaving Palestinians out of talks. Senior State Department officials are currently traveling to Israel, the West Bank, Jordan and Egypt. State Department spokesperson Ned Price. While there, they will engage with senior officials to discuss reducing tensions and ending the cycle of violence in Israel and the West Bank and Gaza. Uh, Acting uh, Assistant Secretary uh, Limpert uh, will be accompanied for uh, the entire trip by uh, Das Hadiamer. But with political deadlock among Palestinian leadership and Israeli Prime Minister Naftali Bennett's coalition government under threat of collapse, there's not much the U.S. can do as the violence continues. Patsy Widahuswara, VOA News, Washington. A Sudanese aid group says that tribal clashes on Sunday between Arabs and non-Arabs in the war-ravaged Darfur region have killed 168 people. Adam Rigo, a spokesman for the General Coordination for Refugees and Displaced in Darfur, 
says fighting in the Krenik area of West Darfur province also wounded 98 others. He said the clashes first erupted Thursday with the killing of two people by an unknown assailant in Krenik around 30 kilometers east of Jenina, the provincial capital of West Darfur. He says the militias known as Janjaweed attacked the area early Sunday with heavy weapons and burned down and looted houses in the area. For more on this story and other breaking news, visit our website at vonews.com. Remember to connect with us on social media. We are on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Search for VOA Africa. You are listening to VOA's International Edition. I am Chinedwafo in Washington. The Horn of Africa is suffering a historic drought that the UN says could result in starvation for as many as 20 million people. In Ethiopia, more than 7 million people are already facing food shortages, suffering compounded by the war in the north. Harry Wilkins reports from Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. A fourth consecutive year of failed rains is causing the worst drought in the Horn of Africa since 1981. Meanwhile, the UN's World Food Programme tells VOA the combination of conflict in the north of Ethiopia and drought in the south are set to be catastrophic for the country. WFP spokesperson Claire Neville says the worst effects could be averted if action is taken quickly, but that doesn't look likely. In the 2016 to 2017 drought, this catastrophe was avoided through early action. In 2022, due to a severe lack of resourcing, there are growing fears that it won't be possible to prevent the looming disaster. A policy advisor for a major humanitarian donor to Ethiopia, who declined to be named, told VOA that the government's focus was on the war and mobilisation for it. So there was significant lag time in doing the assessments and putting in place the response mechanisms for the drought in the south. The advisor said the cost of that inattention was a huge loss of livelihoods, assets and livestock. The advisor noted, however, that the regional and central governments have recently tried to pull together resources and are trying to address the needs in regions of the country like Somali and Aromia, particularly by rallying donors like the WFP. Aid agencies in Africa have also complained the crisis in Ukraine is drawing attention and money away from countries on the African continent. The policy advisor added the damage caused by the delayed response is irreversible and it could take years, if it happens at all, for those affected to recover. Aside from drawing attention from the drought, Ethiopia's civil war has itself been a major cause of humanitarian crises. In March, the government said it had called a humanitarian ceasefire and would allow aid into the northern region of Tigray, where it is fighting separatist forces. William Davison is a senior analyst covering Ethiopia for the International Crisis Group, a Belgium-based research group. Currently, um, despite the humanitarian truce, there still seems to be around one convoy um, of aid reaching Tigray per week. Um, so that is nothing like the unrestricted access um, for humanitarian agencies that's needed um, and we should also note that there has been no move by the federal government yet uh, to restore vital public services to Tigray, including banking, telecoms um, and electricity. The number of people in need of humanitarian assistance in the north, combined with those likely to be affected by the drought in the south, brings the total to almost 12.5 million Ethiopians in need of help, according to UN figures. The National Disaster Risk Management Commission of Ethiopia, a branch of the Ethiopian government, did not immediately respond to a request for comment. 
Henry Wilkins for VOA News, Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. Six soldiers are dead and 20 wounded after Malian army bases in the central cities of Savare, Niono and Bafo were simultaneously attacked this morning by suspected terrorists. Anne Risenberg reports from Bamako. An army press release says that the bases in the cities of Severe, Niono, and Bapo were attacked by terrorists in kamikaze vehicles packed with explosives, and that in addition to the casualties, a helicopter was damaged. Severe is a town in Mali's Mopti region and the site of the former headquarters of the G5 Sahel, an intergovernmental task force with member states Burkina Faso, Chad, Mali, Mauritania, and Niger. The headquarters were moved to Bamako in 2018 after an attack which killed several people. The Bapo military base is less than 20 kilometers from Segu, Mali, a large regional and cultural capital more than 200 kilometers north of Bamako. After an Islamist takeover of northern Mali in 2012, French forces intervened and took back control of the north in 2013. In the years since, insecurity has moved south into Mali's central regions. In February, France announced that it would withdraw its troops from Mali after increasing tensions between France and Mali's military government. Several governments have accused Mali of working with Russian Wagner mercenaries, a claim the Malian government denies. There have been several reports of unidentified white soldiers working with the Malian army in the Segu and Mopti regions since February. Annie Reisenberg for VOA News, Bamako, Mali. This is Science in a Minute. The Large Hadron Collider at the European Council for Nuclear Research, or CERN, has been restarted after being shut down since December 10, 2018. The LHC complex in Geneva was taken offline to allow workers to perform needed maintenance and install upgraded equipment on the world's biggest and most powerful atomic particle collider. LHC operators fired two beams of protons or positive charged subatomic particles in opposite directions through its 27-kilometer ring at 1216 Central European Summertime on April 22nd. In a press release, CERN's Rodri Jones says that the proton beams that were circulated contain a relatively small number of protons. He says it'll be a couple of months before the LHC will perform high-intensity, high-energy collisions. I'm VOA's Rick Pantaleo. Go beyond the daily headlines with VOA's Flashpoint Ukraine. Each weekday at 1935 UTC, join me, Steve Miller, as I put the latest developments into a global context with interviews and analysis. Listen online at voanews.com slash flashpoint or in your favorite podcast player. This has been International Edition on The Voice of America. On behalf of the entire production team, thank you so much for listening. Visit our website for in-depth coverage of world events and news 24 hours a day at VOAnews.com. Until next time, I am Chinonofo in Washington, wishing you a great day. Next, an editorial reflecting the views of the United States government. Nearly two months into Vladimir Putin's brutal and unjustified full-scale invasion of Ukraine, and already the impacts of the war are being felt far beyond Ukraine's borders. Global food security in particular is increasingly at risk. Ukraine and Russia are both major agricultural producers, said Deputy Secretary of State Wendy Sherman at a meeting of the U.N. Security Council. 
30% of the world's wheat exports typically come from the Black Sea region, as does 20% of the world's corn and 75% of sunflower oil. The Russian Navy is blocking access to Ukraine's ports, reportedly preventing dozens of ships carrying food for the world market from reaching the Mediterranean, said Deputy Secretary Sherman. Russia has also bombed at least three civilian commercial ships sailing from Ukraine. Russian missiles and bombs have damaged and destroyed Ukrainian airports, rail lines, train stations, and highways that are critical for getting humanitarian aid to those who need it and for exporting wheat, corn, and other commodities. According to Ukrainian Foreign Minister Dmitry Kuliba, Russia is actively targeting grain silos and food storage facilities, said Deputy Secretary Sherman. All of these actions by Russia are creating a food crisis in Ukraine and well beyond Ukraine's borders. Already food prices are skyrocketing and low and in middle-income countries as Russia chokes off Ukrainian exports. Across the Middle East and Africa, already high prices for staple commodities, including wheat, have risen between 20 and 50 percent so far this year. We are particularly concerned about countries which rely heavily on Ukrainian imports to feed their populations, said Deputy Secretary Sherman. The World Food Program is already feeding 138 million people in more than 80 countries, from Ethiopia to Afghanistan, South Sudan to Yemen, Nigeria to Syria. But now, Putin's war is driving up the costs of providing food assistance. And the Food and Agricultural Organization, FAO, estimates that as many as 13 million more people worldwide may be pushed into food insecurity as a result of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Ultimately, the only way to end this humanitarian catastrophe is through a durable ceasefire and the complete withdrawal of Russian forces from Ukrainian territory and away from Ukraine's borders, said Deputy Secretary Sherman. That decision lies with one man and one man only. Vladimir Putin started this war. He created this global food crisis, and he is the one who can stop it. That was an editorial reflecting the views of the United States government. of America, Washington, Papa, Bozette, Tee.